Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. A weekly podcast from the Canon, an Espionation blog about the Columbus Blue Jackets. I am William Chase. We are joined today by Pale Dragon. What's up, PD? Hey, Will. Doing good. Eric Seeds. How you doing, Eric? Houston, we have an NBA dynasty to discuss tonight. Indeed, we do. And Elaine. What's up, Elaine Shercliffe? Oh, you know, just living the dream, like just like Black Jesus. E- exactly. <laughs> so it's a great segue into our Last Dance pod. Obviously, ESPN's documentary 10-part series of Michael Jordan and the 90s Bulls concluded last night. So we all watched it. I'm going to go around the room, get your initial thoughts on it. PD, go ahead and lead off. Yeah, this was, um, well, first of all, much needed because we don't have live sports. So to be able to have this kind of sports event that could dominate discussion for five weeks and that sports fans around the world could be watching every Sunday night and talking about on Twitter and everything like that was, it's nice to have that kind of communal experience and that kind of escape when, you know, otherwise we'd be watching the NHL playoffs and the NBA playoffs right now. We don't have those. So we have this and it was great there. Um, You know, 10 part miniseries. That's, that's a lot to cover, but they managed, there was no filler there. There was a lot of great content, you know, not just about Jordan, but about, you know, his teammates and his coaches that also played a role in that dynasty. Um, and for me, it was kind of nostalgic. Now, despite being a diehard Cleveland fan now, when I was a kid, I was a Bulls fan because I was a Michael Jordan fan. Um, and, you know, I didn't remember a lot of the specifics of what went down. Uh, I'm sure a lot of those games I wasn't necessarily allowed to stay up to watch or whatever when I was really young. But, you know, I was, you know, reading the newspaper about them and, you know, everything else about Jordan I, I consumed. So um, it was a nice trip down memory lane uh, in that regard. Yeah, I was no no one would ever confuse me with like a diehard NBA fan. I never really got into the league. I never really followed the league closely. Never really have. But uh, no, I was born in 1990 and no 90s kid can could have grown up and not at least been exposed to and experienced the Jordan mystique, the, the posters, the, the Jordan shoes, space jam, the whole nine yards. So it was really nice to one, I guess, relive the nostalgia of my childhood and just remember those times when Michael Jordan was absolutely ubiquitous and he was just a part of our everyday lives that he was this mythological figure that 
uh, for my money, only as as far as sports figures go, only Muhammad Ali and Tiger Woods have ever approached. Like it, it's it's those three and no one else, as far as I'm concerned. Like ab- above and beyond their sport, they they transcended sport. Um, so. The Last Dance was a really great way. I, I, I thought it was great the way the director kind of started with like each ep- each episode kind of had a thesis and he would start like episode one was about Jordan. So we, we walked through his North Carolina years and his humble upbringing. And then we we got to how he got to the Chicago Bulls. And then episode two, we got to Scottie Pippen and how he came from absolutely nothing. He was a walk on ball boy at uh, his his college, and then eventually his growth spurt and his talent allowed him to mature into the fifth pick that was eventually traded to the Bulls. You, you know, you go you go through Rodman and uh, Ron Harper, who I wish they were. And if if I have if I have a if I have a criticism of this documentary, it's that there wasn't enough focus on how important Tony Kukoc was to the Bulls because he was he was important, um, and it, it was mostly kind of an the, the way he was talked about in this documentary was kind of from the angle that Pippen and Jordan took their anger and frustrations out on, uh, or again of Jerry Krause out on Tony Kukoc. Um, but he was, he was a critical cog in the, those later bulls years. But, uh, you know, you, you get Rodman, you get, you get the Steve Kerr episode that we saw last night. And I, I didn't know that story about Steve Kerr's dad that they told last night until last night. I, I, I didn't know that. And I was like emotionally moved watching it, watching how he talked about how he he thinks about his dad during the national anthem, and he thinks uh, and and how uh, there, there was a story circulating on Twitter where Steve Kerr was quoted that the Arizona State fan or students were taunting him, and Kerr had to like compose himself on the bench before playing a game that he took all of his anger and frustration out and obliterated Arizona State when he was in college. It was great to watch and learn and relive that nostalgia, but also to appreciate more of a dynasty I don't think I fully appreciate. I, I, I couldn't have fully appreciated or fully understood in my time. Like, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know what the salary cap was or what a GM was. I just knew Michael Jordan, good. And that's about it. So it was really cool to relive that with a more critical eye and understand why some moves were made, why some weren't. And I guess, I guess for those of you who follow the canon, you know, be critical of the general management in front office because that's a thing that I do. So it was it, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this 10 part documentary. And, and if it had been 50, I would have watched 50 episodes of it. It was fascinating. So for me, it was really extra special (laughs) Um, having, you know, grown up in the suburbs of Chicago, 85 to 96, being able to relive all of those moments again was just like, it was some sweet nostalgia to go along with um, this pause that has been slightly nerve wracking without sports because it's been such a big part of our lives for so long and it was gave my family a chance to rebond over certain moments again so for me it was just like it was super special i loved the non-linear storytelling i think they did a really good job with that the first episode i was like what are they doing <laughs> and then it started to tie together really nice and then it was just like beautiful everything was beautiful about it the soundtrack the way they cut the clips 
the way they did the storytelling. And there were things that I didn't know about. Like, I didn't know about Steve Kerr's dad either, which explains where he fits in with Michael on the team and why they were able to bond and get through each other's walls. I also didn't know couple, about... A couple fisticuffs, couple fisticuffs right there to go along with that, <laughs> but, you know. Right. I'm really disappointed that we didn't get to see that fight because there's no way they don't have footage. Um, but also, like, the pizza gate. I didn't know about that either, but my parents were like, yeah, I know, Elaine, that was common knowledge back then. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, but it was just... It was nice. I wish there was more. <laughs> I want to learn more about the security guards. Um, and I want to learn more about his mom because apparently she helped to make some really good decisions like going with Nike. <laughs> so, yeah. So as uh, PD and I think Seeds also mentioned a little bit about uh, it just it was awesome to be able to relive a lot of this because, you know, I was eight, nine, ten years old. So obviously, again, I like Seeds, you said uh, it was, it's hard to appreciate that. So it's like even though I knew about the Bulls and Jordan, uh you know, it was it was awesome to be able to relive a lot of the, see a lot of those finer details. But for me, I knew about Jordan's competitiveness and determination, but that display of competitiveness just was jumping off the charts. Like he essentially would make something up in his head to gain that edge, like the LeBradford Smith game against the Bullet, the Vin Bullets, Brian Russell with the Jazz, Reggie Miller. You could, it's like almost any player could just look at him the wrong way, and he's going to use that to his advantage to drop 40 on you the next time out. So it's just, it was just, you know, you, you, you knew about that stuff, but just to, to hear those stories every time, you're like, you're like, you know, Jordan's going to make that guy pay next time. And it's just, it's almost ridiculous, almost, almost psychotic in a way that Jordan was so driven, so competitive to a fault that. He was going to use everything he could to his, uh, you know, and I forget who it was last night that mentioned he lived in the present better than anybody as far as just always being ready, no matter what was happening. So that was something that was cool to see just up close throughout the last five weeks or so. One of my favorite episodes, possibly my favorite episode of this entire documentary was the episode where they showed the... uh, not just the Dream Team footage, but also the scrimmages from the Space Jam set, yeah. where those guys were just... And, and I, I was listening to Bill Simmons' pod about it the next day, because I'm a habitual Ringer Podcast Network uh, subscribee. But they were... S- Simmons and Ryan Rosillo both said that like they asked ESPN and the director why didn't you show more of the scrimmages from the Space Jam set? And they, sh- they said they put literally every second of footage they had from those those just pickup games in, in the summer while they were shooting that film in the in the mo- in the uh, documentary. They had nothing else. Like, and I just thought that was really cool that you, you, you see these guys like when, when nothing is on the line except your pride and, you know, being the biggest guy on the court. And these guys were just going after one another or – those those dream team practices where Jordan's team is down by eight and Magic Magic's yelling at him. He's like, you, you, if your te- if you don't become Air Jordan, your team's gonna get blown off the court. And Jordan scores the next fourteen <laughs> points or whatever it was. Right. Like th- th- those are the those are the things that I really wanted to see. Is like when the crowd isn't there, when the cameras aren't there, when when there's no one around, and it's just Jordan and his peers, and Jordan still has this 
almost homicidal need to become be not only the best guy but to be be the best guy by a country mile and let you know he's the best guy on the court like it's those were the things that i really really enjoyed and i jordan is this monumental asshole i don't think anyone here would dispute that but it was but he's lovable and 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 he the way he went and and i I think the way he went about it I, i or i guess i understand the way he described it in that in the one interview at the end of i think episode seven when he's like I never asked a teammate to do anything I wouldn't get yeah. out there and do. And I thought in that yeah. right, like right. like he like this this guy's a lunatic, but he's gonna do everything it takes to win and he's only asking you to just follow him into war. And I thought that was really cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he was so competitive that he had to find things to do, like throw coins up against a wall <laughs> to get close to a wall. Or like you know, it's just it's so funny to me that he was just so competitive to a fault almost and then but his team was willing to like do it for him think about steve kerr in the last episode last night where he's like i'm gonna pass you that ball he's trying to be all chill about it and kerr's like i'm gonna do it let's do this (laughs) like i will do this for you yeah i I think i think it's fascinating to see how these high level athletes how you know how they get to that level what they use to motivate themselves um to see the the work that has to go in to become that kind of athlete and i do wonder you know do you have to be an asshole to be that good i think um, you do in a way i think I, I think in you know in jordan's case it seems to be like yeah that 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 was part of what made him yeah. tick and you see that in like you know a lot of the the greatest college football head coaches are you know, huge, huge assholes. But on the flip side, I think you can, there are examples though of other guys who, like LeBron James, I feel like is a lot more, nice. you know, is a lot friendlier with his teammates. And so maybe he doesn't need to go to that level to, you know, to be successful. And he's had a lot of success, but then he also does not necessarily have the, the killer instinct that Jordan did. Um, or look at a guy like uh, Magic Johnson, who I feel like, you know, is a beloved guy and a friendly guy, and he can be very competitive on the court, but he knew when to turn that off. And I don't know that Jordan ever really knew how to turn it off, or maybe felt like if he turned it off, that that was going to jeopardize his his status, you know, that he felt like he had to be on and be that asshole the whole time or else he would lose that edge. When you talk about that edge and all that, it, Kobe always came to mind since Jordan in terms of that sort of uh, cockiness, the arrogance that you kind of need to, you know, have that winning mentality or attitude, I guess. Not to say that other players have to be that way to have a winning mentality, but I totally get what you're saying as far as uh, kind of the Jordan, the, just that mentality he had all the time. Well, and, and to that point, I, I think I would... Uh if I were building a franchise around one of these players, I would maybe build it around LeBron because of his he's a physical freak and because he can do so many different things on the court. But if I needed a guy for one game to you know to win a game seven, I want Michael Jordan on the court. Because there's no way he's losing that game. Right. Well the thing with LeBron though is the he has to trust the GM to build the team around him. He spent a lot of time saying who should come to the team. And Michael was like, I don't want Tony Kukoc here. He knew he didn't have a say in it. And then they went, 
like the whole dream team just harassed him during that game. And then the second game, Kukoc came back stronger and he's like, oh, I guess like he's the real deal. So at least he was open to like, I feel like Phil Jackson helped the players realize what their roles were, which allowed Michael to be like, I don't have to do everything. And to kind of, you know, realize that Horace Grant was good at the role of defensive role that kind of that Rodman came in and took over for, but they didn't realize he was good at that role until he was gone. That, that might have been my biggest takeaway from this entire documentary, Elaine. Thank you for bringing that up. Is honestly how important Phil Jackson was to that team. Like we we all we all we all remember Phil Jackson, the failed Knicks GM who was paid millions of dollars to sit on a beach in California and run the Knicks from afar. And honestly, we, we remember Phil Jackson for the the nine ten Lakers titles and even maybe the the uh, first Lakers th- the the Lakers three peat. What Phil Jackson did for that Bulls team cannot be overstated because not only did he rein in a literal psychopath. But he helped that he helped Jordan buy into uh, the triangle offense. He helped Jordan and Pippen and all those supporting role players find each other. And I thought it was super, super cool how they ended that documentary last night with Jackson. Like, like I'd, I'd heard the story before, but it was awesome to see actual footage of them writing poems and sentences and whatever of them. And then the, of what that sentence mean, meant to them, and then burning it all in the coffee can, and that that team just came together after you know the Pippin contract drama and Pippin surgery, Rodman running off to Vegas for a few days and getting going on a four day bender in the middle of the season, Jordan having to kill himself to carry that team to even like the Eastern Conference title. They didn't even have home court in the finals, and like Phil Jackson got them to buy in in a way. I, I I don't I can't even imagine another NBA coach in history doing that. Maybe Pop, but I don't like Phil Jackson doing what he did with that with that squad in that ninety eight playoffs was unbelievable. And it, it that that gave me a total new appreciation for his his coaching ability. Yeah, it, he was very different in terms of you know, his fascination with like Eastern philosophy and Native American spiritualism and and how he was able to incorporate that into his coaching philosophy. And that was so unusual for the time. Like I, I was struck by a clip in one of the early episodes of um, you know, one of the first seasons when he was coach of the team, and there he was leading the Bulls in yoga at practice. And this would have been the early nineties. So before that really caught on as a thing, which now you know, across sports, all the players do yoga. You know, there was a thing this year that, the, you know, the Jackets do weekly sessions of yoga. Yeah, you know, um, right. but, but that was totally different at the time. And yet here he was able to get guys like Jordan and Pippen to, to buy into doing that. And he realized ahead of the curve, oh, hey, this is an activity which can, can help the mind and help the body. And those things are, are connected and both important to, and, you know, and with Rodman realizing like, hey, this guy does need to be away from basketball at times. Like that's fine. Like he's good enough on the court. When he's here, he will he will do his job. If he needs to get away to have his focus on the court, then okay, we can manage that. We also saw that he did acid, and I did not know like any of these crazy stories about like the cocaine circus and like Phil 
Jackson doing ass, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, the NBA was wild. They were wild back then. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Hello, I'm Nilay Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to pivot to the Jerry Krause dynamic, and this is kind of a bit of a free-for-all, but just, you know, obviously so much encompassed, you know, interwoven with Krause, with whether it's Pippen feeling disrespected, like, as you already mentioned, Jordan Pippen uh, pretty much making Kukoc look bad in the, uh, over in the Olympics, although that was kind of the spike Krause, but, uh, and of course, you know, became a teammate of the Bulls, and they, they all got along, but... Uh, what was your guys' thoughts? I mean, obviously, Krauss died a few years ago, so it's not like he was there to, I guess, defend his actions of everything. Obviously, he's kind of portrayed as the villain in this entire documentary. Right. Like, my parents, when we sat down for episode one, looked at me and said, remember, Elaine, Jerry Krauss was bad, but remember what Reinsdorf did to the White Sox and how cheap he was at times? And I was like, whatever. And then last night when they talked about how he basically didn't really want to spend the money for all of them, I was like, oh, it wasn't just Kraus? <laughs> like, it, it made me mad because I spent this whole time just being like, I, I didn't like Kraus anyways, and now I didn't like him even more. But now I'm like, oh, he wasn't alone. I had two big complaints about the, the documentary's portrayal of Kraus, and each was a was um, somewhat addressed last night, which was good. Part of it is, um, yeah, Reinsdorf deserves nearly as much scorn as Krauss does because it, you know, it was Reinsdorf who had the policy against renegotiating. Um, you know, they had the clip of Reinsdorf saying, you know, oh yeah, that was, you know, that was a horrible contract that Scotty signed. He never should have signed it. It's like, dude, you're the owner. Like, you could have told him not to sign it. You could have offered him a better contract at the time. You could have let him renegotiate, but you you knew, you knew what he was doing and you were happy to let him do it, you know? And I, and so I'm glad that in the final episode there, you know, they had the clip of Ryan Storff talking about why they broke the team up and that they showed that clip to Jordan and had Jordan react to that. And that was, that was good. And, and that was, I'm glad they put him on blast for that. I also think that Krauss deserves a lot of credit for 
building that team. So, you know, Jordan was already there when he when he got the job. But, I mean, I th- anyone would have picked Jordan in that spot. Except Portland. Um, but, you know, Jordan's teammates at that point were the, were the co- were the, they were the cocaine club, right? You know, and Krauss was able to, to build uh, this team. And I would point people to an article that was on The Ringer last week that Roger Sherman wrote that outlines a lot about Krauss that the documentary leaves out. But, you know, he built this team up. They won that three-peat. Then uh, Jordan left, and Krauss had to retool the team. And so that was a, outside of Pippen and Phil Jackson, like that was a whole different supporting cast for the second three-peat. So I think that says a lot as a GM to be, to be that flexible and to be able to build essentially two separate championship-winning dynasties. Um, obviously, having a player like Michael Jordan helps, but he knew how to find the right pieces that would plug in. And like a case like Tony Kukoc, you know, that was a still at a time where it was very rare to bring over Europeans, and let alone a European that would be really successful. And, you know, Kukoc was a really good player in the NBA and a really good fit for that team. And, you know, Kukoc spot that. You know, he was good at finding those diamonds in the rough. Apparently, he was, you know, he recognized Scottie Pippen's talent before other teams did. And then Scottie, you know, had a great workout, like at the Combine or whatever, and that's when other teams were clued into it. But, you know, if it weren't for that, I think Krause was still going to draft him at some point and knew that he needed to trade up and get him, um, you know, cause, but he had been in on him early. Um, you know, the documentary didn't mention that he had been in the NBA before, you know, they made it sound like he was just a baseball scout that got the job, but that's, that's not true. He, most of his career had been spent in the NBA and he'd been with the bullets and had found some, uh, some small school gems there that turned into all-stars. So, um, yeah, I thought that was a little bit unfair, and it, the fact that he you know, died in 2017, he was not able to be interviewed and defend himself, and that that's unfortunate. I kind of come out of the documentary agreeing with the general sentiment that Krauss deserved more credit than he got, because he did, while he didn't find Michael Jordan, and any GM third overall when Michael Jordan is available is going to take Michael Jordan. He deserved more credit than he got, but he also didn't deserve the credit he thought he deserved. Like it sounds like, it sounds like Krauss by all rights, uh, thought he thought he was the single reason the Chicago Bulls were winning titles when he didn't realize, uh, 23 is the reason they are six time champion in eight seasons. Like Mike, Michael Jordan is probably the greatest basketball player. It, for my money, the greatest basketball player to ever play the game. And you're, you're discounting his influence if you think it's the organization, not the players. I realize he said he's misquoted. I'm going to stick with the evidence that's on the tape in the documentary that uh, Krauss thought he deserved more credit. However, but but don't but but don't they both deserve credit, right? They like, do, they, they do yeah, they do Krauss both deserve credit. Again, Krauss deserves more credit than he got, but Krauss doesn't deserve the credit he thought he deserved. But Jerry Reinsdorf is a significant problem in this and he and, and it kind and, and the way the documentary ends with him saying yeah I blew up the bulls because I didn't want to pay Jordan and Pippen and Jackson kind of is problematic looking back at the rest of the documentary because I look back and I'm like wow so you're this asshole that helped not not helped you empowered Jerry Krause to blow up the Chicago Bulls and I, I, I get that 
Pippen needed paid, yes. He was on a criminally underpaid contract for the last five years he was a Chicago Bull. Jordan was paid appropriately, but he was paid 30 times as much as Scottie Pippen or something ludicrous like that. Krause found Kukoc. Krause made, made several trades that made it happen. Basically, Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause both agreed that a rebuild was in the best interest of the Chicago Bulls franchise rather than running it back with Pippen, Jordan, you know, replace Dennis Rodman if you want to. He was aging and not very good at that point in his career. Steve Kerr, whatever you want to do. I tend to fall on the side of Jordan here that those guys had won six titles in eight years Jordan and Pippen were aging, but had played well enough. I mean, Pippen, we, we all saw the footage in episode 10. Pippen barely played in that game six. And when he played, he was like, I mean, he, he played for five minutes to go back into the locker room and get five minutes worth of treatment. Pippen and Jordan deserved a chance to defend that title. And it's maddening and nigh indefensible that the front office conspired to not allow that to happen because they thought a a rebuild would be in the better interest, not just of the team, but of the not not just in team wise, but dollar wise for the future of that franchise. And then the Bulls go on to and then Krauss and Reinsdorf blow that rebuild sky high and they don't make the playoffs for 20 years like. Yeah, they're still rebuilding. No, pushing out. They pushing made out. the play. Wait, hold on. They made the playoffs because they definitely played the Cavs. Like all the Derrick Rose years, but for the, the most, for the majority of the last twenty years. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 pushing pushing out the greatest player of all time and another top twenty five player of all time just for dollar reasons is utterly indefensible. And honestly, if the if the blue like 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 let's let, let, let's. Let's imagine for for a night we're Penguins fans, okay? For, nope, for one nope. five minute. I can't do it. I can't do it. Don't do it to me. <laughs> I feel physically okay, ill. Am, am, like I just got mad at streamers. Like I can't be like them. <laughs> okay. Imagine imagine Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin are Blue Jackets players, and the front office decides <laughs> we're not resigning them because we don't want to pay them, even though they're defending Stanley Cup <laughs> champions. Yeah. How angry would you guys be? I I mean. Yeah. I would flip a table over. <laughs> I mean, I was mad well, I don't watching know, that documentary. He's... Like, blowing up a team for dollars and dollars only is indefensible. What, Will? I don't know, Elaine. I, you were on the, the record a few weeks ago of saying that uh, you didn't think these big-time contracts were, would make sense for players. No, but I mean, like... Hold on. That I said long term. I said long term. Not, <laughs> I know. Not, I know. Don't you? Don't you dare. But what if? Um, I, guess, we, I guess though, it's like what if? What if Crosby was like five more years here in Columbus? <laughs> that sounds so weird to say. But, uh, <laughs> let's just go beyond that. Can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine the escape of the lands? Like the landscape of the NBA changing if they all came back for that seventh run the next year. Because Steve Kerr never would have gone to San Antonio. San Antonio may not have won their first championship in 99. And then Bill Jackson wouldn't have gone to L.A. So would L.A. have won all those? Like, it, it's so crazy to think of, like, how different the league would be if they had folded and said, you know what, let's bring everyone back for another run. 
I feel it's crazy to think about it that way. Yeah, except Jordan was assuming that everyone would be okay just coming back on a one-year deal for yeah, more time. True. And I, I don't know, I don't know how true that is. Obviously, you know, Pippen right. still would have, you know, he would have wanted a big-time payday. You know, I don't know how feasible it would have been. Yeah. To, to to make that kind of arrangement. And I think it sounds like Phil Jackson was even a bit burned out as well. So I think he was mm-hmm. pretty happy to right off in the sudden take a, take a year off. And it has said, you know, everything that Jerry Krause did, like Jerry Reinsdorf would have had to sign off on. So even if he, you know, he had at least tacitly approved it, if not actively be on board with, yeah, do this plan, let these guys go, save me money. Well, right. But I'm just saying like, if it actually like happened, if out of like, they just decided it happened. The NBA would probably look super different. Oh, yeah. That, that was actually one of the topics of one of the ESPN shows out of Chicago I was listening to today where they were talking about could they have come back a one for a seventh and, uh, you know, Pippen. Yeah, like you said, PD, Jordan was like, yeah, Pippen would probably come back even if we had to convince him for one more, you know, one more uh, one year deal. But, yeah, you know, some of the people were like, ah, Pippen was ready to get that big time money. Uh, I definitely get the sentiment of... Jordan and those that say, you know, at least give us a chance to come back for one more opportunity. But yeah, I think too that Phil was also ready to take a break because uh, he was apparently going through a divorce and obviously he came back kind of on the other side of it in LA and carry on a new dynasty basically. In reference to the last dance and the Bulls dynasty, what are some of the hockey dynasties that may come to mind for you guys? Detroit Red Wings. I know they didn't win like 21 <laughs> cups. But to make the playoffs for that many years in a row is actually pretty spectacular. Let's see, the uh, 80s Oilers were uh, an incredible collection of talent. That, that, was, that was pretty impressive, what they did. Well, uh, Nick Lidstrom is the perfect human, so thank you, Elaine Strickliffe, for shouting out the <laughs> uh, Detroit Red Wings. I'm actually going to go in a... You're both fired, by the way. <laughs> the Phil Kessel... Pittsburgh Penguins. Oh, that hurt. Oh no. No, I'm actually going to I'm actually going to shout out <laughs> If we're going to talk about uh dynasties that might not get the recognition especially in today's day and age, I'm going to shout out the uh 1980s New York Islanders. The the Islanders back in the day, uh they they won the Stanley Cup several years in a row right before four years in a row yeah yeah four years in a row right before Gretzky's Oilers took off. You know, guys like guys like Denny Potvin, Brian Trottier, uh, those type of guys, Mike Bossy was on that team. That Islanders team, they drafted well, they played well as a unit, they were not only high scoring, they defended well, they were mostly homegrown players. F- few fortuitous trades broke their way, same way like the 80 Celtics when they ended up picking Denny Podvan second overall or something like that, uh, thanks to a fortuitous trade four years prior. It's the same way this Boston Celtics got Larry Bird in a trade three years prior. Those are the type of dynasties that, you know, not only resonate, but we don't really see much anymore. Guy, teams aren't really trading first-round picks five years in advance just to try and make themselves better now. So, And, that, and, that, and that's how teams like the Islanders, the Oilers, uh, the Celtics, those guys won back in the day. I guess you could give, like, a little bump to the Canadians in the 50s and 60s. Nah, go to hell, French Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this isn't to belittle Montreal, but I was kind of wondering, because I was thinking about this with the Bulls, too. Like, obviously, the salary cap, you know, you could go back to the old Celtics days in the NBA with their titles and run and the Canadians. And I don't know, not to say that, of course, of course, the Islanders and Oilers were also pre-salary cap. Well, it turns out that Bill Russell guy was pretty good. (laughs) 
Yeah, he was pretty good. And, and George Washington University alumnus Red Auerbach. Gretzky, as great as Gretzky was, he wasn't considered like an asshole, right? As far as the, uh, I guess, the, the mentality or the the dominance that he had. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, he, he was a pr- pretty good teammate and certainly known for making his teammates better. You know, like look at his insane number of assists in his career, so... Based on all the uh, NHL history I've read during this quarantine, it doesn't sound like he's was much considered much of an asshole. He basically he was mostly just the talented guy that guys were afraid to hit and was kind of had free reign on the ice to do what he wanted. Him and Lemieux. Now, granted, I after all the NHL history and stuff I've read this quarantine, I think I've come around to Lemieux was better than Gretzky. Ooh. Yes, I agree. I agree. I agree. Um, okay, Re- re- redo Lemieux's career if he's healthy the entire time. Lemieux blows all of Gretzky's scoring records out of the water. Okay, but he wasn't, so... But he still... Okay, he... After... He, he had, like, a multi-goal game after his last cancer treatment. Like, the same Le- Lemieux, day. Lemieux won the Hart Trophy the year he f- <laughs> took two months off to fight leukemia. Like, that's... That's gross. There's a lot of Penguins love on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Gretzky had more assists than anyone else has had career points. Yeah, that's what's so crazy. It's insane. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's insane. To be wait, to go back to like no one saying anything really bad about Gretzky, I cannot picture hockey players actually talking smack about publicly about someone who's a really really good player. I think some of that goes to just the the strong Canadian influence, you know, that there's a certain type of personality that you're expected to have in hockey, and yet you're not supposed to be controversial, which, you know, I think the downside of it is it makes the players less marketable, you know, which is an issue that the NHL is facing now. But yeah, if NHL players, you know, chirped each other publicly more, like, I think that would make the league a lot more entertaining. And what I want to see, I want to hear more of what Mitch Marner thinks about people <laughs> the way the way he said columbus <laughs> in that in that video of him playing i don't even know what he was playing but oh my gosh i was dying and then his friend called him on the fact that he he tells him every time he finds some good place to eat <laughs> in columbus well that is going to do it for us this week our theme music is the song green eyes by angela pearly and howlin moons off of their album homemade vision Angela's newest album is called 430, and you should definitely go check it out. Check her out at AngelaPerley.com, and you should also check out Angela Pearly on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for videos and live stream concerts from her home during the stay-at-home period. Rate us and leave us a review on iTunes, and as always, we welcome your comments and questions. You can tweet at us at CBJCannon and comment on JacketsCannon.com. From all of us at the Cannon, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. You're cool like-